Calling all AEC professionals. Get ready for unparalleled professional insights with detailed and original podcasts by RCAT. This is the podcast that brings you the untold stories and lessons learned behind the design and delivery of a building project. Hey, it's Sharice Lakeside, aka the CSI Kraken, and your host. Join me as we dive deep into the tales of conflict, triumph, and sheer ingenuity. Yeah, so when Serena was named for the, it was going to be named for the building, you know, we really were able to work with teams at Nike Branding and how to really infuse her influence and identity in the very public spaces. Detailed features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who spill the beans on the most complex, interesting, and downright odd building conditions they've encountered. Another challenge of the of the shuttle is actually and putting it in launch position is how you brace that seismically. It's really supported by only two pins at the base of the booster rockets. And there's a large base isolator that's underneath the shuttle that kind of prevents it from moving too much in an earthquake. The, you know, when you have 600 people or 300 people in a room, acoustically, you really need a high floor to floor so that you can have the right acoustic environment for people to be able to talk and that, that speech intelligibility is really good. Every episode unveils lessons learned and connects you to the products you need to navigate similar challenges. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Detailed today and be prepared for the unexpected on your next project. Every building has a story and we are here to tell it. love that you're learning. <laughs> I'm learning. I love that you're learning with us right now. <laughs> yes, that's the whole point. Hey there. Thanks for listening to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Today, we're talking about Julia Morgan, the first woman to be licensed in California. I'm Lizzie Rahr from San Francisco. I'm Nergiri Rivas, socially distancing in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers coming to you from Washington, D.C. All right. As always, before we begin, a quick disclaimer. We are not historians or experts. Yes. So if we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning together. Okay. So today, as I said, we're talking about Julia Morgan. Ladies, before we started this, did either of you know anything about Julia? I don't think I've ever heard of her. I know a lot of Julia's and a lot of Morgan's, but Julia Morgan isn't one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think people in California would know who she is, but I didn't know much about her before I moved out here. And I think if people have heard about her, it's because she designed Hearst Castle. But she was a woman of many impressive firsts, even before she was commissioned for that project. Excited. Mm -hmm. All right. So Julia was born in San Francisco in 1872. She grew up in Oakland, which at the time was a wealthy suburb of San Francisco, whereas today it's its own city. And she lived there with her parents and her four siblings. Her parents were pretty adamant that all of their children were educated, even though at that time it was uncommon for girls to attend school past middle school. And Julia loved advanced math and physics. 
and she preferred staying home from parties and social events so she could do homework. Well, all right, then <laughs> that would not be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of Milka Bliznakov from episode one. Right. All of these women really love school. So she even opted out of her debutante party which I think at the time would have been unusual for someone from like a wealthy socialite family. Um, she essentially had no interest in marriage and she never ended up getting married. A rebel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Julia's mother was the daughter of a self-made millionaire on the East Coast. And her father had an unlucky career of failed investments and attempted get rich quick schemes. So her mom's family money paid for most of their life. And when she was growing up, they would go back to the East Coast to visit her mom's family. And one of her cousins was married to a guy named Pierre Lebrun. And he happened to be a successful architect in New York City. That was her first introduction into architecture. And Pierre helped her with her future career choice. Lizzie, did you identify with that when you were learning about her? Yeah, I think so. Um, Like I mentioned last week, my aunt is an architect. Right. And that definitely had an influence on me in choosing architecture as a career. Wait, so Lizzie, was Julia even allowed to go to college at this time? Yeah, that's a good question. We know she's really into school. And so it's not surprising that she was pretty set on having a career of some kind. And luckily, more women were starting to study at colleges. So in 1890, she enrolled at UC Berkeley, which was just down the road from Oakland. It's funny you mention women going to college at that time, because one of our future episodes is going to be about the woman who opened the door for Julia, Elizabeth Ragg Cumming. She was the first woman to graduate with an engineering degree in the U.S., and she graduated from none other than UC Berkeley. Mm. So stay tuned for that story next time. Exciting! So even though they let women into Cal at that time, Julia's brother, Avery, had to escort her to all of her classes because at that time, women traveling alone was still considered a social faux pas. Okay, pause. So I think it's kind of weird. Like thinking about it today, my first inclination is to think that the reason why Julia couldn't walk alone because it's not safe for women to travel alone. But I have to think that it's the 1800s or whatever. So at the time, I'm going to believe that women were just supposed to stay at home or that was like the norm that women stay at home and tend to the house and the children. Right. Like it was never thought of that women could be allowed to experience higher education and, you know, have a career. Yeah, that was the whole point. It's it's all the little ways that women were discouraged from getting an education that we don't even realize or think about now. Yeah, yeah, it's nutty. All these things that we take for granted today. I never thought about the women that had to be escorted to class before me so that one day we could go to class by ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Like to your point, Jessica, the safety factor, I think that's something we think about today. But then like it's weird to think about not being able to like just go to a class during the middle of the day on campus by myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So when she was at Cal, the men in her classes were not very friendly, but she did really well in spite of that. And during her time at Berkeley, she made the decision to become an architect. She had been impressed by Pierre's projects in New York. But the other thing that pushed her to do it was that she loved understanding and figuring out how things work. To her, architecture was like solving a complex math problem or composing a symphony. That's so true. 
I feel the same way about architecture, that it's like this perfect blend between art and math. I like that part about composing a symphony. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's what drew me to it as well. It's creative, but it's also like logical and technical. Mm -hmm. And I like the mix. Okay. Unfortunately, there was no architecture degree at Berkeley at that time. Ooh. Wait, what? I know. (laughs) So she had to choose the closest degree that she could. So civil engineering, which focuses on building materials and structural stress, is what she chose. She was the only woman to receive a civil engineering degree in her graduating class in 1894. While Julia was in school, there was a man who taught geometry at the university and architecture out of his home, and he mentored her. His name was Bernard Maybeck. Do either of you remember studying him in school? No. Do you? Yeah. I guess I slept through that. (laughs) Oops. Wait, is is he someone that we would have known? Like, what did he do? Well, he's mostly well known in Berkeley and the Bay Area. He was part of the arts and crafts movement. We definitely talked to him about him in history a little bit. Um, Okay. Yeah. (laughs) If you say so. yeah, Yeah. You know, he felt that the house grows out of the land and that it grows with the owner and that it should inspire. And those ideas really resonated with Julia. Can we talk a little bit more about Maybeck's ideas? I didn't get that very well. Okay, I think I got it. I think it's actually kind of poetic. I think what he means is that the house is like an extension of the owner. And as you evolve in your daily life and your daily routine, your house will too. Mm -hmm. And it's all like connected somehow. Right. But Lizzie, the arts and crafts movement, this is like Frank Lloyd Wright territory, right? Yeah. Frank was also part of the arts and crafts movement as well. And Green and Green in Los Angeles, they're all kind of with under that umbrella. Okay. Okay. So can we also get back to Julia? So if he if she is just like hanging out with Bernard, like what about like (laughs) the architecture degree? There is no architecture degree. She can't get a degree. How did she how did she become an architect? Right. Yeah. So in order to become an architect, She still had to study and get a degree in architecture, which we all know something about. Mm -hmm. So Maybeck was actually the one that suggested she go study architecture at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. At the time, it was the best school in the world. However, not surprisingly, in the 1890s, the school had been strictly all male for about 250 years. But there was a rumor going around that they might start letting in women. So based on this rumor, Julia moved to Paris in 1896. Oh, wow. She moved to Paris before she applied? Why? That seems great. I know. (laughs) But at that time, they had to sit for an entrance exam. So she couldn't like apply from afar. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. I I didn't think about it. There's no Internet. I can't take the SAT and send it, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, you can't just like fill out the Common App. The Common App! Do people still do that? Yeah. Memories. <laughs> she didn't have She didn't have the common app. Nope. She did not. <laughs> That's brave. What what happened? Yeah, so once she made it to Paris, she discovered that not only do they not accept women, but they also have a limit on the number of international students that they accept. But that didn't deter her and In the meantime, while she waited, she learned French and started working at an atelier or an architect's studio. That, again, that is so brave. 
moving to another country where you don't even speak the language and working there. Actually, Lizzie, you worked in Europe for a while, right? How was that for you? Yeah, it was definitely a little scary, but also exciting. And I worked in the Netherlands and my office spoke English because most of the people in the office weren't Dutch. So that made it a little bit easier. We were all kind of from different places. And also a lot of people in the Netherlands speak English really well. So, I mean, as much as I wanted to try and learn some Dutch, I didn't need to. And I can't imagine what Julia went through, like having to learn a whole language and that kind of thing. So in 1897, the Ecole des Beaux-Arts allowed women to take the entrance exams and Julia was ready for it. So even though math is one of her favorite subjects, she struggled on the math section of the exam because it was all in metric. Same girl. Like calculations have always been tough for me. Like just even as I'm trying to prepare for the AREs there's just a lot Mm -hmm. but um to add to that metric if you're not used to it it takes a while for you to get familiar with it like remember when we did that semester in Italy and we had to do our studio projects in metric yeah that was rough (laughs) yes actually I don't know if I've told you guys this but in Puerto Rico they teach us both metric and imperial at school really Mm -hmm. and through life Yes, yes. Hmm. And through life, we use them interchangeably. Like our cars say miles per hour, but the supposed mile markers on the street are actually kilometers and our gas is bought by liters. Lizzie, I think you noticed that when you visited me, remember? I feel like I have a vague memory of that, but I did not remember that at all. I remember the mile markers and kilometers and I thought that was... It's strange. I I don't know what's up with that. So strange. I feel like I know enough of both, but not enough. Yeah. Like, I get it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But sorry, I digress. Julia had issues with metric. What happened? Yes. So even though she had issues with metric, she placed 42nd out of 376 applicants, which is like pretty good. Heck yeah. That's amazing. Way to go. Right? But they only took the top 30 people. So she didn't get in the first time and she had to try again after six months. But the judges purposefully docked points the second time she took the exam so that she couldn't get in. What? That is bananas. I bet you they took points off until she was 31 and then they rubbed it in her face. (laughs) (laughs) Right, though? I mean... Come on. So she told her cousin in a letter that she was going to try for a third time just to show that girls are not discouraged. And so on her third try, six months later, she placed 13th and she got accepted. Yeah. Way to show him who's boss. Right. All right. So you'd think that's the end of the struggle, right? She made it in. But there's a rule at the school that you have to graduate before you turn 30. (laughs) What? Oh, my gosh. What are they? Ages? Right? Isn't that such a weird What's rule? What's up with 30? I don't yeah, know. They, they accept 30 people. They have to be below 30. Ooh. What's this magic number? I don't know. I don't know. They've got a thing with 30. So I don't know. But apparently that's how they did it. And so when Julia got accepted, she was 28 years old. So she buckled down and she received her certificate a month before her 30th birthday. And she won first prize in the student architecture competition. She finished architecture school in two years? Yeah, isn't that crazy? (laughs) It's so crazy. Go, Julia! That is 
crazy impressive. I know. I mean, we were there for five years. I just like can't imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Me neither. So after she graduated, she worked in Paris and New York for a while, but she really wanted to go back to California. So she turned down some jobs in order to get back to the West Coast. And eventually, a fellow Ecole alum, John Galen Howard, hired Julia to help him work on the UC Berkeley's building program. Does that mean she was working in academia? She was working in the curriculum of the civil engineering program? No. So they were designing buildings for the campus. Mm. Yeah. And she started getting noticed for her projects. She designed the outdoor Greek theater for UC Berkeley and a bell tower for Mills College, which was a women's college in nearby Oakland. And both of those buildings were designed with reinforced concrete, which at the time was a new technique that was really only being used in England and France and hadn't been used in the States much yet. So Julia was an innovative visionary, is what you're saying. (laughs) I guess so. She was definitely spearheading that type of work since she'd learned it when she studied in Europe. So while she's working for Howard, Julia was working out of her parents' garage, but she always wanted to have her own studio. And then she heard some gossip that Howard was going around bragging about his number one designer, but he was adding the comment, to whom I have to pay almost nothing as it is a woman. What? What the what? That's horrible. Right. What does that mean that he has to pay her almost nothing because she was a woman? Like it's a requirement to pay women nothing. What would happen if he paid her? I don't know her worth. Would she have crazy ideas like wanting to vote or wear pants? (laughs) Oh, no, Jessica. Anything but that. You took it too far. My bad. Women (laughs) should only wear skirts. Yeah, well, she felt similarly. So she decided to take the California licensing exam because she couldn't start her own studio without being licensed. So in 1904, she passed and she became the first female licensed architect in the state. And then she opened her own office in San Francisco. Yeah, that's how you do it. Bam. How many years before Norma Merrick Scaleric was that? So Norma got her license in California in 1962. So 58 years. Oh, nice. That was a fun fact. Yes. So Julia starts her firm. Things are going great. And then in 1906, the San Francisco earthquake happened. It destroyed Julia's entire office, along with the vast majority of the city. After the earthquake, fires raged across the city for days. The reports are varied, but somewhere between 700 to 3,000 people died, 300,000 people were homeless, and 28,000 buildings collapsed. Oh, no. Yeah, it was a 7.9 magnitude, and about 80% of the city was destroyed. Wow. Lucy, is that something you think about often living in San Francisco? Yeah, I mean, you kind of get used to little earthquakes here and there. I've lived here six years now and only truly felt maybe six earthquakes. But you're kind of always wondering when the next quote unquote big one will hit. So Mm. but some of the buildings that did survive the 1906 earthquake were Julia's designs. They used reinforced concrete like the bell tower and the library at Mills College and her buildings at Cal. So people started taking notice of her because the city obviously had to be rebuilt, but it also needed to be able to withstand another earthquake. And she was one of the few architects that had this expertise. So the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco, it survived the earthquake, but the shell of the building was the only thing that made it through the fires that followed the earthquake. And so they approached Julia to work on the rebuild. 
and they told her that they wanted to reopen the hotel in one year, which we know is a pretty expedited timeline. <laughs> yeah, that's insane, yeah, but something tells me Julia achieved it. You bet she did. She was up to the challenge, and the hotel had its grand reopening on the one-year anniversary of the earthquake. Yeah, 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 that's how you do it. <laughs> so after the Fairmont, Julia was a hot commodity. People were talking about her. But that, for her, was a double-edged sword. She was very quiet and shy, and she avoided attention at all costs. She never went to any social gatherings, entered competitions, wrote articles, spoke at conferences, wrote memoirs, or drew any type of attention to herself. That actually reminds me about something that Jessica and I were discussing a few weeks ago, that women don't document their work or enter as many competitions or generally toot their own horn as men do. Yeah, for sure. And what's crazy is that that still translates to today. Yeah. Right. Like, and it's not just architecture. It's the general workforce. Why? Women are less likely to negotiate their salaries and so forth. Yeah, but I, I think that adds to the fact that people don't hear more about women architects making history because women tended to be and sometimes today still are less vocal about their achievements. Yeah, yeah for sure. So people started referring to Julia as the client's architect because she insisted on working directly with the owner, family or occupants of the building. She had a reputation for high quality work and professionalism. She was always on site climbing up ladders in her tailored suits. And on one construction site, she even fell off of the scaffolding and fell three stories into the Sacramento River. Wait, what? She survived, right? Like this episode can't end like this. The end. Yeah. <laughs> no. No, she was completely more. fine. And after they pulled okay. her out of the river, she insisted on going back up because she wanted to keep looking at the work. She was really nonstop, and her coworkers joked that she lived on coffee and chocolate alone. That sounds like <laughs> my diet for five years of studio. Right? But imagine <laughs> your whole career. No. Yeah. <laughs> so back when Julia was at Cal, she got to know Phoebe Hurst. And Phoebe was the widow of a multimillionaire. She was a big supporter of women and their ambitions, so she took an interest in Julia when she was in school. She actually offered Julia money for the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, but Julia refused. Phoebe was a big philanthropist in the Bay Area, and she donated a lot of money towards various buildings at UC Berkeley, some of which Julia designed. And Phoebe was involved with the YWCA and suggested Julia to be the architect of all the YMCA locations and the YWCA Conference Center on the coast of California. So what's the YWCA or the YMCA? It's a song. <laughs> YMCA. Okay, but you can't build that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it stands for the Young Men's or Women's Christian Association. Today, you would know it as the Y, right? Which is like a local rec center. And most YMCA and YWCA chapters have merged. So it's co-ed now, whereas it used to be separated by gender. Phoebe sounds like she was a big champion for Julia. That's great. Yeah, she really was. And Julia actually met Phoebe's son, William Randolph Hearst, when she was designing a hunting lodge for Phoebe. And Julia and William found a shared interest in architecture and the California landscape. So when Phoebe died, William inherited 250,000 acres of land in San Simeon along the coast of California. 
and he called Julia to help him build a project there. At first, he just wanted a bungalow. The land had previously been used for the family to camp and it was undeveloped completely. But now he wanted to have like a permanent structure on the property. But it quickly turned into what they called the ranch. So Julia would work in the city on her other projects during the week. Then she would take a train and a taxi during the night, arrive first thing in the morning to work on the ranch over the weekend. And then she would turn around and go back to SF to work another week. How far was St. Simeon from San Francisco? So today, if you drove there with no traffic, it would take you like three and a half to four hours. Whoa, that's a serious commute. Right. And you're working 20. Yeah. And then to think you have to work for it, like on top of that during the week. Yeah. And she did the back and forth thing for the entire design and construction of the project, which lasted from 1919 to 1938. That's almost 30 years. She did that for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> Why did the project take that long? OK, yeah. yeah. So the project had some major scope creep. As Hearst's wealth steadily increased, the project increased. It started out as a bungalow and then it became a ranch, then a museum to hold his huge art collection. And ultimately, it became a castle for entertaining guests from the social elite. Hence the name Hearst Castle. Whoa. Yeah. Plus, there was a ton of site work that she had to design, too. A five mile road that wound up the hill just so they could access the site. Housing for all of the crew, a wharf at the coastline so that building supplies being shipped in from SF and art to arrive. She even designed an aqueduct system to pipe in mountain spring water from five miles away. And then in addition to the site work, what started as three cottages became mansions with 10 to 18 rooms each. Plus, 127 acres of the grounds were developed and landscaped, which included the Neptune pool with a Roman temple in front of it. Hot diggity dang. Do you think she can win? It's a crazy project. Yes, it really was. And Hearst also collected animals. So Julia designed a zoo and it was once the largest privately owned zoo in the world. <laughs> he was like the Tiger King before Tiger King. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder it took 30 years. Also, I yeah. feel like this episode is sponsored by the number 30. Yeah, no kidding. So Julia was actually quoted saying, never turn down a job because you think it's too small. You don't know where it can lead. And this project seems like the ultimate fulfillment of that quote. Yes. <laughs> right. Hey, remember when we had to design bathrooms like dog baths? <laughs> what? Uh, no, I don't remember doing that. Was that a project? <laughs> OK, so maybe that was just me. Um, my first firm that I worked at, I had to design a dog bath. It seemed ridiculous, but it's in my portfolio now. Well, there you go. No project is too small. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> So in addition to building this castle for 30 years, Julia designed a total of more than 700 structures from small residences to mansions, schools, churches, stores, hospitals, swimming pools, women's clubs, crematoriums and college campuses. Is that all? Yeah. Goodness. That range is so interesting. Like crematoriums right it's strong i i mean i don't know <laughs> yeah. where you start with a crematorium but i mean somebody got to design it right so right no project is too small mm -hmm. that's right <laughs> so in 1950 julia closed her architectural office at the age of 79 
And in typical Julia fashion, she instructed her staff to burn any documents or drawings that clients didn't want, saying, my buildings will be my legacy. They will speak for me long after I'm gone. How dramatic. <laughs> they burn everything. Such a bummer. I know. Talk about documenting your work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I thought it was sad, but I guess it's fitting with her personality and how she was. Still seems a shame. It does. Yeah. So after that, she traveled around the world in her retirement. And eventually she returned to SF where she passed away on February 2nd, 1957 at the age of 85. And now we know Julia didn't write anything or enter competitions, but she was the first woman to be awarded the AIA gold medal posthumously in 2014, which is the AIA's highest award. Ooh, that's nice. Long overdue, but I like that the AIA at least recognized her and her work. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the only way they could. I can totally see her turning it down if she was alive, like, no, no, thank you. I'm good. Yeah, you're so <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Fun fact, guys. It is pretty okay. widely accepted that Hearst was the main inspiration for the main character in Citizen Kane. And the estate in the movie called Xanadu is based on Hearst Castle. And I think some of the initial wide shots of Xanadu in the movie are Hearst Castle. Did either of you watch that movie in school when we did the film studies? No. No, that wasn't the one that I had. But when we think of architectural films, Citizen Kane is definitely in the canon of films that a lot of architecture students study. Other films might include like Rear Window or Metropolis. Mm, yeah, I studied The Godfather. Oh, you did? Yeah, I had Rear Window. I had Contempt by Jean-Luc Godard. Mm, nice. Yeah, a good one. All right. We're almost at the end of our episode, but before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyatid is. Right. So for some background, a karyatid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek style building. Each episode will choose a karyatid or a woman who is working today, furthering the profession through their work and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Thanks, Jessica. So. Without further ado, this week's karyatid is... Elizabeth Roberts. Yay, Elizabeth! So Elizabeth is an architect in New York City, and she's particularly known for her work on New York City brownstones. She is passionate about working on older buildings and historic architecture in order to preserve and highlight it but also update it and add modern elements. Elizabeth grew up in the Bay Area, just like Julia. She actually grew up in Marin County, which is where the office I work at is located. And she went to Berkeley for undergrad and studied architecture, just like Julia did. After that, she wanted to focus on historic buildings, so she went on to study historic preservation of architecture at Columbia in New York City. And then she worked at several firms in New York before she started her own firm. So in an interview I read, she described herself as the yes and architect. And she described that as hearing a client's idea and rather than saying, no, we can't do that. She says, yes, let's go for it. And then she works that idea, layers it and makes something new and interesting out of it. And it reminded me of how Julia was called the client's architect. Oh, that's such a great approach. Elizabeth. 
where did you first hear of Elizabeth? <laughs> so <laughs> Jessica actually sent me an article about her because she thought she might be a good caryatid for Julia. And then I found this other interview with her and I felt like there were a lot of similarities between her and Julia. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I first came across Elizabeth Roberts. I think I was reading an article from The Cut and I just thought it was interesting because Elizabeth is considered to be this like known architect for New York City and New York City brownstones. And that reminded me of Julia because she was known to be like the architect in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was cool. Yeah. Good care you did. All right. It's here. The end of our episode. We want to thank CMYK fellow Syracuse graduates for our music. You can find them on Spotify. Special thanks to John W., our technical producer, who we definitely couldn't do this without. And most of all, to you listeners. Thank you so, so much for listening. And we hope you enjoyed learning about Julia and Elizabeth along with our banter and that you're inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. We are so excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuiltspodcast at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our website, shebuiltspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at shebuiltspodcast and on Twitter at shebuiltspod. Until then, bye! Hey, designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it, be a cost we're saying well what about carbon you know we've got two levers now that we can if, if an architect has an inefficient design we can hit them with two levers if you like <laughs> the official casualty figure is fifty-five thousand. everybody i talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much and i believe that i mean seeing what i saw turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today.